morning, everybody. You're very welcome. Um, I hope you've had a chance to get some coffee and some breakfast uh, so that uh, you'll, you'll, you'll have sustenance um, for this talk for the next hour. Um, you're all very welcome to Mason Hayes and Kern, those of you who haven't uh, been to our building before, and those of you who are back for a, a subsequent visit, you're all very welcome. My name's Liz Ryan, and I'm going to be the person who coordinates the session this morning. It, we feel that the whole issue of you know, age and age in the workplace is a very hot topic for our clients. We've had lots of questions over the past couple of months about the issue of retirement ages, and my colleagues uh, Peggy and Stephen, who work on the pension side, certainly have ha seen kind of spike in queries around uh, pension plans, uh, facilities around uh, people retiring at certain ages, underfunding issues. So we thought it was timely to have a session on this issue of um, age in the workplace. I suppose it's important at the beginning to recognise that when we're talking about age in the workplace, um, from an employment lawyer's perspective and from a pensions lawyer, lawyer's perspective, what we're really looking at, the landscape that we're looking at, is that of age discrimination. So you'll hear quite a bit this morning about the notion of age discrimination. And the really interesting thing from our perspective, an employment lawyer's perspective, about age and age discrimination is age is binary. So every day that passes, a person is getting older. So through a person's working life, they can potentially be discriminated on the grounds of age, not just when they're older and they're considering retirement, but of course, age as a discrimination issue comes up in terms of people applying for jobs, people going through job interviews, uh, people in the workplace in terms of training and promotion opportunities. Uh, younger people can often complain about there not being promotional opportunities. Females on maternity leave, what do you do about their pension funding? So there's lots of issues um, around uh, age in the workplace. And we're not going to focus on those today. We are going to focus more on the issues that arise where people are coming close to retirement age or they're considering retirement. But we will run a sort of a stage two of this session and we'll talk about the other age-related issues that do crop up that I mentioned to you. Um, so today uh, I'm going to speak to you a little bit about, from an employment lawyer's perspective, perspective age uh, issues that arise and this whole notion of retirement ages and where the law is moving to in respect of uh, the, the, the matter of retirement ages. Um, my colleague Sarah Brown, uh, who also uh, works with me in the Employment Law Department, Sarah is going to talk to you about practical steps that employers can take uh, where they have employees coming up towards retirement to facilitate the needs of the organisation and also the aspirations of the employee around their retirement. And then we'll pass you over to uh, uh, Peggy and Stephen. Peggy and Stephen also work in our department, but their focus is on pensions. Peggy's going to talk you through, just to recalibrate, some of the matters that arise around pension scheme documentation, the types of pension schemes that are available, um, the, the um, services of pension trustees, of pensions advisors. And then we're going to hand you over lastly to Stephen, who's going to talk to you about some of the problems that can occur where pension scheme documentation is poorly drafted. Uh, and he'll share some of his sort of war stories with you at the end. We're all really conscious that you have a day's work to do. We definitely will have you out by nine o'clock. We plan to finish at about 10 to nine for some questions, 
But if any of you have questions that you don't get to in the open session, please do come up to us at the end, and we're very happy to stay back and answer your questions. Okay. So, in terms of my own um, particular contribution, we spoke a little bit about why age in the workplace is uh, becoming a topic that employment lawyers are increasingly focusing on. And you might be asking yourselves the question, well, why is that? And I suppose there's been a bit of a push and a pull. Um, a recent survey concluded that um, employees now expect and hope to work beyond the age of 65. And that is a factor of the demographic uh, population of Ireland. We certainly have always been one of the younger workforces in the EU, but our, our workforce is ageing. And also, we have seen an increase in the state retirement age. Uh, you're aware that it will have gone up to 66 in 2014, and it's due to rise again um, to, let me just stop the stats, to, in 2021, it's going to move to 67, and in 2028, it's going to move to 68. So there are many workplaces where uh, an employer has a contractual age of 65 and an employee is saying, I simply can't afford to retire because I don't get a state pension. Currently, there's a gap of a year, but that gap will extend with time. And that has, that has become um, uh, you know, one of the problems that employers are, exp are, are experiencing. So let's just look at what was the situation in the past. So as many of you will be aware, in the past, employers were able to enforce contractual retirement ages. So if an employer had a, a retirement age in the employment contract, there was an expectation amongst the employees that that age would apply, and when it came around, there generally wasn't much controversy about the employee retiring at the contractual retirement age. Also, the state retirement age was 65, and so there was a nice balance, and, and that's one of the reasons that most employers had a retirement age of 65, because it correlated with the, uh, state, uh, the, the, the state retirement age. And there was probably a shorter life expectancy. Um, you know, people didn't necessarily expect to live maybe 30, 40 years after their retirement. But again, we're seeing that situation change now uh, with a, a longer life expectancy. So that was the situation in the past. What is the situation now? Well, um, the, the, I suppose the legal framework is that while an employer in Ireland can have a contractual retirement age, that retirement age is persuasive, but it's not determinative. In other words, an employer can't wholly rely on the contractual retirement age any longer because there's been a body of case law from the Court of Justice of the European Union which effectively says that where an employer wishes to have a retirement age in their organisation, they can certainly do so, whether that's in the employment contract or whether it's a matter of an employment type policy. But, and here's the big but, that retirement age has to pass two tests. The first is that it is objectively and reasonably justified by a legitimate aim. And Sarah will be talking to you in a little bit more detail about what exactly that means. And secondly, the measures of achieving that aim are appropriate and necessary. And if an employer's retirement age doesn't pass test A and B, then it is at risk of being deemed to be discriminatory. And that's the long and the short of it in terms of the current legal position. 
So this is probably one of the, the more important slides uh, in the session in terms of just explaining where are we now. This is, this is where we are. Um, we're all aware, as I said, the state of retirement age is 66 now and longer life expectancy. So how did all of this come about? How did this um, body of case law come to be uh, decided by the Court of Justice of the European Union? Well, the seminal case uh, is a case you may have heard of. It's called Palacios and Cortifal Services. And in this case, uh, Mr. Palacios was employed in a private sector company in Spain. And in Spain, there was a collective agreement which essentially said that uh, people should retire at 65, um, but only if they have a fully funded state pension scheme. Right? And Mr. Palacios came to the age of 65. He did not want to retire. His employer forced him to retire, and he took a case through the Spanish National Courts right up to the Court of Justice of the European Union. And the, the, the CJEU um, said that effectively uh, the, the retirement age that was set by the Spanish government in a state agreement was not discriminatory on the grounds of age. And the reason for that is that it was in place to meet a social policy and that social policy was to give opportunities to younger people to enter the workforce and earn a living. So that was, the, if you like, the objective justification test that we spoke about a little bit earlier. And it was to achieve a legitimate aim, which is to reduce unemployment. They also said that the measures that the Spanish government took were not disproportionate because the Spanish government were very careful. They didn't simply say that an employee must retire at the age of 65. They did make the provision, and there was the rider in the, the Spanish government's provisions, that an employee would only be forced to retire if they had a fully funded uh, social security state scheme. So if effectively, the CJEU said that in those circumstances, the Spanish state was not uh, discriminatory in the, in the way that it uh, put the collective agreement together and that Mr. Palacios's employer did not discriminate against him on age grounds. So that's, that is, I'd say, is, is the seminal case. There's been lots of case law in the CJEU since then, but we simply don't have time to go through it today. So we spoke about the first test, which is that a retirement age must be objectively justifiable. Well, a lot of employers struggle with, what do you mean by objectively justifiable? And some of the tests that uh, case law has, if you like, thrown up, um, which, uh, which go to this whole issue of objectively justifiable are those where an employer can demonstrate that they have an objectively justifiable reason for setting a retirement age where, for example, there's health and safety concerns uh, with uh, as employees past a certain age, succession planning, um, establishing an age balance in the workforce and encouraging the recruitment and promotion of younger people. Now, I'm not going to go into any detail on this um, a objective justification point because Sarah is going to cover that off in some detail in her particular presentation. <coughs> but once the employer can demonstrate uh, he or she has objective justification for putting a retirement age in place, uh, then, then that's good. They're off the starting blocks, but they're not home and dry yet. Because the second tests are those around does the employer have a legitimate aim? And the third test is whether the steps taken by the employer to achieve that aim are appropriate and necessary. And I'm just going to look at two cases which I think very nicely highlight 
how courts apply these tests. And you will be, um, well, you should note, Irish courts have followed these tests quite closely in case law. So they have looked at the rationale applied by the CJEU and have applied it in our local, either the Workers' Relations Commission or our civil courts. So the first case is that of Paul Doyle versus ESB. And Mr. Doyle was a graphic designer in ESB. He was communicated to by email that um, the company had planned his retirement and that they were organizing some retirement drinks and a function to, to, um, to, to, to mark his retirement. He was very disgruntled about this. He did not want to retire. He took a claim against the ESB uh, and it was dealt with ultimately by the Labour Court. And the, the ESB basically made the argument that it needed to have a retirement age at 65 for a number of reasons. Um, to allow for opportunities for younger people in the organisation, to provide for succession planning, to provide a situation where employees with particular, if you like, new type skill sets could come into the organisation and have a career, and they were typically younger employees, um, and also for health and safety reasons. Now, Mr Doyle made uh, a very strong argument uh, and, and rebutted the point that the ESB made around health and safety reasons, because the ESB, of course, were arguing we handle live electricity, we have people going up and down poles, they carry heavy equipment, and he went, well, yes, but I'm a graphic designer, I sit in an office, so how can you justify applying the same test to me? And very interestingly, the Irish Labour Court said it's, it's important and it's necessary for employers to have cohesion. So the retirement of Mr. Doyle was not discriminatory. I think that's a really interesting point. An employer is not expected to have eight retirement ages, uh, you know, one for people who might do uh, very you know, outdoor heavy lifting type work and others who sit in offices. That the overwhelming, I suppose, um, objective is to have a cohesive retirement age that is fair to the vast majority of the population. I think that was, that was, that was a, uh, you know, a very instructive point that the Labour Court um, uh, you know, uh, outlined in that particular judgment. But ultimately the ESB was successful and uh, Mr Doyle did not succeed in his argument that he was discriminated against on the grounds of his age. The other case, it's a case that went to the CJEU, uh, Martin and others versus the professional game match officials limited. And Mr Martin and three others, they were referees and they, ref they refereed matches at a very senior level uh, in this, uh, this, uh, this organisation. Um, and they, were, they had a, a, a retirement age of 48 uh, it, uh, for referees. So referees had to retire at age 48. Again, Mr Martin and three of his colleagues did not want to retire at the age of 48. They said that they were well able to work on, there was no rationale for this retirement age of 48. The, 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 in, in Holland, referees had no particular retirement age and they argued that they were discriminated against on the grounds of their age. And again the CJEU looked at well, what are the legitimate aims of this professional game match officials limited and a legitimate aim is that their referees are fit. Um, but Mr Martin argued I, I can be fit beyond the age of 48 and there's no particular issue if you if you've concerns about my fitness bring me in and carry out medicals and if I'm not fit enough 
to referee at a very senior level. There were three other tiers of refereeing, uh, which were less than the tier he operated in, less onerous. I can move to one of the lower tiers. And the CJU said, mm, that, that's a good point. They absolutely took that on board. Um, the, the, also, the CJEU looked at things l like, you know, why is the age of 48 set? And it looked at statistics that Mr. Martin and his colleague produced to demonstrate that in other jurisdictions, with appropriate fitness testing, referees could work on for a much longer period of time. Um, so all in all, the CJEU concluded um, that uh, while it was a legitimate aim of the association to have referees who were fit and who had proven trackability uh, to referee matches, that there was no necessity for a blanket retirement age of 48, that the organisation could approach, if you like, retiring referees in a different way, and that the setting of this, the standard retirement age was not a wasn't a, a legitimate means by which it, it ensured that it reached its aim of having referees who were fit to do the job. So I'm practically out of time, so I'm not going to run through my takeaways with you. They're in the slides. I think the slides are going to be circulated, Shauna, after the session. I'm going to hand you over to Sarah, who's going to talk a little bit about that first test, the objective justification test. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you, Liz. And welcome everyone this morning. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm an associate on the Employment Law and Benefits team. So I'm just going to look at some practical tips for employers in engaging with their employees around the delicate issue of, employee, of retirement and to put, put yourselves in, the, in good stead to defend any claims that might arise. So the key questions that all employers should be asking themselves when looking at the issue of retirement are one, do you have a contractual retirement age in existence? And this could be either expressed or implied by course of dealings or um, custom and practice. And if there is an, a contractual retirement age, can it be objectively justified as Liz has touched upon? So I just thought it would be useful to look at some of the examples of legitimate aims that have been held by the courts to be objectively justifiable means of having a mandatory retirement age. So the first thing to, to think about when you're thinking about objective justification is that the aims in question need to have some sort of a public interest element to them, i.e. a social policy element, and they shouldn't be specific to the needs of the particular business so, for example, measures to promote cost-cutting or competitiveness will more than likely not be, object, be accepted objective justifications for a mandatory retirement age. So the first example that I'm going to give you is health and safety concerns. And this, again, will be very specific to the type of work that's been carried out. It's important for employers to give meaningful consideration, carry out risk assessments and hazard identifications so that they can show a court or a third party that meaningful consideration was given to the individual hazards of the employment in question. And a useful case is, it's an example of where health and safety concerns would be relevant would be in the context of drivers or, or pilots or those kind of professions. A useful case that we have seen is the case of Transdev, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the surname of the, the employee involved, 
but Transdev were employing the Lewis drivers. And a particular, they had a retirement age of 65, albeit that it was not in the contracts of employment, and they had no policy on retirement. There was a pension scheme which operated a retirement age of 65. The employee in this case came to 65 and wanted to work beyond that age on a fixed term contract and was refused on the basis that working as a Lewis operator was a safety critical role and that they required their, their drivers to retire at 65 for health and safety reasons. So when the Labour Court looked at this, the, the employer was able to provide metrics, health and safety risk assessments, and they were also able to point to medical evidence and evidence to show the rate of absence in over 60 Lewis drivers versus the rate of absence in days lost in those under. And the court found this persuasive and held that it was a legitimate aim and that the retirement age could be objectively justified, albeit that there was no contractual term or policy in place. The next example of an accepted objective justification is that of succession planning. And in this case that I've cited here, Selden involved a law firm, with, so it's close to all of our hearts, and they were employing a, a retirement age for their partners of 65. And the court held that in circumstances where the law firm had to consider the prospects of the future of the firm and to ensure that these, the needs of the business were met going into the future, that this was an accepted justification for having a mandatory retirement age of 65. This decision gave some useful guidance on objective justification in the private sector and is definitely worth a read if you get a chance, but I can't really go into it in more detail because of time constraints this morning. Another example that Liz touched upon is the aim of establishing an age balance within the workforce in terms of experience and expertise that different ages bring with them and this has been held in the past to be an accepted objective justification for a mandatory, age, or mandatory retirement age. Finally, the aim of encouraging the recruitment and promotion of younger people has been held to be a legitimate aim that objectively justifies a mandatory retirement age. And this can often link in with national policies such as stimulating the labour market and vocational training and reducing unemployment. So if an employer has a mandatory retirement age and seeks to enforce it, what are the tips that we would give them? Firstly, have a contractual retirement age if you want one and you seek to enforce one, and have a clear retirement policy in place in how you engage with employees around retirement. This policy could set out that you have scheduled conversations with your employees as they come towards retirement age so that they're not ambushed like in the case of the ESB case that Liz mentioned on their 65th birthday with an invitation to their own retirement drinks so that it feels like a more collaborative process. And sometimes in the course of these conversations an employee will suggest themselves that they want to wind down or work a four day week because very often people don't want to work beyond 65 but it's important that these type of suggestions come from the employee in the context of these more formal conversations. And also I think it's very important to be proactive around financial planning because Liz mentioned the statistic earlier but just to expand on it a little bit, 
66% of employees recently surveyed said that they wanted to or felt they would need to work beyond the age of 65. And I think this is important that a lot of the reluctance that employees have around retirement comes from a fear of their financial house not being in order. So if you have the pension side of things under control, and Peggy and Stephen will talk to you more about this, it can take some of that fear factor out of it for employees. This is something that we see come across our desk quite often. If an employee wishes to stay beyond a mandatory retirement age, what do you do? And the equality legislation now provides that an employee can stay on on a fixed term contract beyond the mandatory retirement age imposed in that business if it can be again objectively justified and you'll hopefully be saying the words objective justification in your sleep by the time you leave here but this has to be caveated with a number of things one if you're if you're going to use fixed term contracts for employees beyond retirement age the usual rules around fixed term contracts apply, such as carving out the Unfair Dismissals Acts. And Liz and I were having a bit of a, a debate about this in that this might be difficult if there is no break between the contracts, as arguably the previous service will come into play as well. But there, there is no case law on point there, but it's just something to flag. And also the rules around successive fi fixed term contracts. But also to say that any exception you make to a mandatory fixed term contract can have the effect of undermining its future application and so every request from an employee to deviate from this mandatory retirement age should be considered very carefully and on a case-by-case -case basis. If an employer does not have a mandatory retirement age and they seek to enforce one, you're in the territory of looking to rely on an implied term in the contract and this could be linked to the pension age, it could be by custom and practice that everybody has just retired at 65 and it's never been an issue and a lot of organisations find that. But the Labour Court did look at this issue in Connacht Airport Development Limited trading as Knock Airport and John Galvey. And John Galvey had been employed two peed over to this company, the respondent company from another company and neither his pre or post 2P contract of employment specified a mandatory retirement age. There was no policy in place, but the company was able to point to a practice that people, by and large, retired at 65. The court held that there was no implied term in the contract and that Mr. Galvey had been dismissed on the basis of age discrimination and he was awarded compensation, albeit somewhere in the region of 6,000. But it's just important to note that if you are going down the implied term route, it's not necessarily foolproof and you're better off to have an express term in the contract. So the key takeaways are, one, specify a, con a mandatory retirement age in your contract of employment if you are going to seek to rely on one. Have reserved the right to vary this retirement age, but I would caveat that again with any time you undermine the retirement age, you, you undermine your ability to enforce it at a later date. Have a clear policy and as always train your managers in this policy. It should be a living, breathing document that is not just left on a shelf. And consider and give meaningful consideration in a proactive way rather than reactive when you get a claim in the, in the letterbox. Consider how you can objectively justify your retirement <coughs> age 
and if possible, document this consideration so that it can be produced, even a memo to say we discussed X, Y, and Z can be useful to produce in evidence in defense of an age discrimination claim. And finally, get into the habit of discussing future plans routinely with your employees. For example, in the context of the annual review, you know, every year, what are your plans? Where do you see yourself in the next few years? So that when somebody gets asked these questions when they're nearing retirement age, it doesn't feel like an ambush or an attack at their age. It's just a normal thing that they're expecting. So I hope that was helpful. And I'm going to pass you on to Peggy now to tell you everything you need to know about pensions. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, and good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Peggy Hughes, and I'm a partner in our pensions team here. And this morning, I'm going to talk to you about some of the ba very basics of pensions and have a look at why, what I consider to be some of the essential features of pension schemes. I guess it's aimed mainly at people who are not particularly experienced in the area of pensions. Um, but we're mindful that if you're in, uh, employed in a HR function or in a finance function or perhaps in an in-house legal function in your organisation, you may from time to time find yourself involved in trying to deal with some of the employer's pension scheme issues. And in fairness, that is not generally your area of expertise. And what Stephen and I find is that people who don't work in pensions on a day-to-day -day basis can find the area a bit technical and a bit daunting, and that's entirely understandable. However, um, we also find that many employers invest quite heavily in the pensions offering for their employees, whether that's through payment of contributions into a scheme, payment of pensions authority fees, or payment of expenses from the pension scheme, whether that generally in relation to various service providers. And those service providers are generally um, administrators of pension schemes, pension consultancies, it could be investment managers, professional trustees, and actuaries and dare I say it lawyers um, and if back at your own workplace you find yourself involved in pensions issues and you have access to these service providers that's fantastic use them they're there to help you um, but as with anything in life I always believe that you tend to get better outcomes if you have a reasonable understanding of the basics of issues yourself because then at least you know where to go to find out the basic information and perhaps better equip yourself um, in how to address queries to those service providers. Um, I was just thinking this morning to myself, it's not entirely dissimilar to googling your condition and making a list of ailments before you go to your GP. You want to get the best bang for your buck out of that consultation. Um, so with that in mind, um, I'm going to have a look at some of the very uh, basics initially in relation to pensions generally in Ireland. Um, pension provision today in Ireland comes from two main sources. You've got your social welfare uh, state provision and you've got private provision. The state provision comes through the state pension. As Liz said, it's payable currently at age 66. That will increase to 67 in 2021 and 68 in 2028. And there is no guarantee that it will stop at that. And indeed, there's no guarantee that there will be a state pension in indefinitely in into the future. So private provision is generally where individuals will set aside some form of saving for themselves for retirement. And that is still entirely voluntary in Ireland from the perspective of individuals. 
Um, although that may, may change in the future, there has been much talk for many years about introducing some form of mandatory or semi-mandatory system, um, and, but it, it still hasn't materialised, but I think it's probably inevitable that we will end up in, in something like an auto-enrolment situation, perhaps like the UK. Um, so private provision is usually through occupational pension schemes which are established by employers, um, by uh, personal pension arrangements, that's usually by individuals um, who are self-employed, and PRSAs or personal retirement savings accounts. Um, we're constantly reminded of the pensions black hole that we're all staring into, we're all living longer, um, and the workforce is decreasing. And in an attempt to encourage us all to save more for retirement, the government has a number of incentives available through tax reliefs. And those incentives includes, uh, include tax relief on contributions, tax-free returns on investments in pension funds, and tax-free lump sums in retirement. Um, but to secure the benefit of these um, uh, tax incentives, any occupational pension scheme, I'm sorry, I should have said I'm going to focus on private sector uh, occupational pension schemes here this morning. Um, uh, such pension schemes need to have exempt revenue approval to get the benefit of those tax reliefs. Um, and to get revenue exempt approval, the requirements include that a, a pension scheme must be established under an irrevocable trust, and in Ireland that's under documentation known as trust deeds and rules. And they must meet um, revenue restrictions and requirements in relation to a number of issues such as who is eligible to join a scheme and how and when benefits are payable. I guess it's important to note as well that revenue approval is not necessarily permanent, it can be withdrawn. So once you've got your pension scheme established and you've got it revenue approved, you need to make sure that it's managed properly so it doesn't fall foul of revenue restrictions and end up losing its approved status and therefore losing the, the tax benefits and the tax incentives. I want to talk very, very briefly about the three pensions regulatory bodies here in Ireland. You have the Pensions Authority, the Revenue Commissioners and the Pensions Ombudsman. Um, the Pensions Authority is a statutory body and it has a number of functions basically. Um, it monitors and supervises the operation of occupational pension schemes and PRSAs in Ireland. It issues guidance notes, it advises the Minister for Social Protection and one of the more uh, important functions is that it prosecutes for breaches of the Pensions Act and it does so frequently and it publishes um, those details of those prosecutions. Um, it's important to note that uh, as well as being approved by the Revenue Commissioners, all pension schemes must be registered with the Pensions Authority. Um, what I always highlight to people is the Pensions Authority's website. It's an excellent resource for inf of information. Um, if it's not your main area of expertise, I would advise you when you go back, if you have anything to do with pensions in your organisation, look up the Pensions Authority website. There are loads of booklets and information leaflets there. You can download them for free. And you can also um, subscribe to receive updates from the Pensions Board. And that's always useful to, to have as well. The Revenue Commissioners, as I've already alluded to, they have uh, quite a considerable role in the tax treatment of pensions in Ireland, both in relation to pension schemes and pension products. They must be approved by the Revenue um, to avail of the tax incentives that are available in Ireland. But I'm not going to go into any more detail than that, given the, the time constraints here. Finally, the Pensions Ombudsman um, is another one of the regulatory bodies. Um, the first holder of the office was in 2003. The current holder is Gerard Deering. He is also the Financial Services um, Ombudsman. And 
legislation has been introduced in May of this year, which when it's passed will actually amalgamate the offices of the Pensions Ombudsman and the Financial Services Ombudsman. Essentially, the uh, Pensions Ombudsman is responsible for investigating um, complaints of financial loss or disputes of uh, factor law in relation to pension schemes and to PSAs. The office holder usually investigates those after they've, the complaint has gone through an internal dispute resolution process, so that can be waived in, in certain instances. Um, so as I mentioned, those offices are going to be, the Office of the Pensions Ombudsman and the Financial Services Ombudsman is going to, are going to be merged later on this year, most likely. So at its most basic, an occupational pension scheme is established by an employer to provide retirement and or death benefits in respect of employees who are members of the scheme. It must be exempt approved by the revenue commissioners to avail of the tax benefits. It must be registered with the Pensions Authority. Um, they're generally established by a trust deed with rules attached. Um, the trust deed documentation and the rules are your bible for your pension scheme and they basically set out um, the rules around how the scheme will be operated. It has details of contributions, who makes contributions and how many, who's eligible for membership, um, uh, how, how to amend the pension scheme and various powers are set out in the, the pension scheme documentation. So they're, they're very important documents but they tend to be quite legalistic and complex in nature, so um, legislation requires that basic information in relation to pension schemes are set out in writing and provided to members and certain other persons, and that is usually done by means of a, a member's explanatory booklet, uh, in, which is usually should be set out in plain, simple layman's terms. And uh, Stephen will have a look at the relationship between the member's booklet and the, the trustees and rules later in his talk. To spend a few moments in relation to the types of pension schemes, because you need to have a basic understanding of what's available in your own workplace if you're going to be working in relation to those schemes. You have defined contribution or DC, defined benefit or DB, and hybrid pension schemes. Um, defined contribution schemes are also known as money purchase schemes, and that's essentially because the um, benefits provided by those schemes are essentially those which can be purchased from the fund of money that builds up within the scheme. There is no promise regarding the type or le the level of benefits to be provided. The employer and sometimes the employee will make contribution to the scheme. The, the money is invested and uh, the member therefore takes the investment risk in, with regards to a DC scheme because their benefit relies entirely on the contributions that go in, the investment return and how they choose to take their benefit at retirement. With regard to DB schemes, they're also known as final salary schemes, but that can be a slight misnomer these days. Um, essentially, the documentation effectively uh, set out to provide a, a member, or those schemes set out to provide a member with a retirement benefit, um, generally linked to their length of service and uh, very often their final salary, but there is a, a, an option for career average as well these days. Um, regardless of the investment return, the employer is generally charged with providing the benefit. Therefore, that's quite a significant risk for any employer, and most of you will be aware over the last few years there have been a number of high-profile employers, and indeed not so high-profile employers, seeking to limit that risk by either closing their scheme to future accrual or closing it to new members or indeed winding them up completely. Um, then you f finally, hybrid schemes, they're a combination of DB and DC. Some of the benefits are provided on a DB basis, some are provided on a, on a DC basis. 
So you have your scheme established, you have your scheme documentation there, and it's been approved by the revenue. So how, who is responsible for the overall operation of the scheme? Well, the day-to-day -day running of the scheme is undertaken by administrators, and they could either be administrators who are part of a pensions consultancy or an insurance house, or indeed they can be, if a scheme is self-administered, it can be in-house administration, effectively. But the, the persons or the entities most responsible for the overall management of a pension scheme are trustees, and I just want to say a few words about um, trustees here today. Um, trustees can be individuals and or corporate entities. They can be lay trustees or uh, professional trustees or a mixture of both. They're usually appointed by the employer by deed. Um, who can or cannot act as a trustee is governed by legislation and we're likely to have new minimum qualification requirements for trustees in the future as well. Trustees' duties and obligations are many and they're very onerous and they're set out under scheme documentation and legislation and trust law as well. Um, looking at uh, the lifespan of a pension scheme, it's inevitable that complaints or disputes of some sort will arise during the lifetime of a pension scheme. Therefore, legislation requires that the trustees of every occupational pension scheme put an internal dispute resolution process in place or an IDR process in place. Um, the IDR process, it may be used voluntarily for all uh, disputes or complaints, but it must be used in relation to complaints that essentially involve allegations of financial loss as a result of maladministration or disputes of factor law in relation to the uh, management of a pension scheme. Essentially, as part of an IDR, the trustees will investigate the complaint, um, issue a notice of determination within three months of receipt of all documentation and information that they need. Um, and having an IDR process in place really means that it gives you an opportunity to resolve issues before they get to the pensions ombudsman. And also it gives a certain level of comfort to scheme members to know that there is a process there where their, where their complaint will be taken seriously and dealt with appropriately and in a, in a consistent manner. So looking at employer access obligations in relation to pension provision. At the moment, and again this may change in future, depending on what comes in down the lines, employers must provide access to a standard PRSA for excluded employees. So PRSAs come in two forms, standard and non-standard. The difference generally lies in the investments that can be made and the charges that are applied. And where an employer does not provide, employers sometimes do not provide access to pension schemes or they restrict eligibility in respect of retirement benefits or they restrict eligibility to those who have more than six months service or they do not have a provision for uh, members to make additional voluntary contributions. Where members are affected by or employees are affected by any of those restrictions, they're known as excluded employees and employers must provide access for excluded employees to standard PRSA and the part of providing that um, access means that they have to give basic information to the, to the employee about their entitlement to set up a PRSA, um, allow them reasonable time and leave to access a PRSA provider to set up their PRSA, and to uh, provide a salary um, contribution, salary deduction facility for, for those employees, and give them written confirmation, at least on a monthly basis, of what contributions have gone to the PRSA. So at a very basic level, that, that they are the employer access obligations in relation to pension schemes at the moment. But as I say, they may change in the future. So pension scheme documentation. Um, 
I feel very strongly about this. The only way you can get the best value out of the investment you put into your pension scheme as an employer is to make sure that you know at least the basics of what you're providing or what you're offering. If you know that, you know what your flexibilities are, what your liabilities are, and what you cannot, cannot do in relation to your pension scheme. And it allows you to plan for that and plan ahead. So um, just in relation to pension scheme documentation, some of the more important provisions, and uh, I feel, are for you to go away if you're involved in your pension scheme back at your workplace, know who the participating employers are. There can be more than one participating employer in pension schemes in certain situations. What are the powers under the pension scheme? Who has the power to appoint and remove trustees? It's usually the principal employer and it's usually by deed and it may set out a minimum number of trustees which must be in place at any given time. Who has the power to amend the scheme? It, it, it's usually either the principal employer or the trustees and usually with the consent of one or the other. Um, I worked on one particular night, nightmare scheme at once where you didn't just need the consent of the trustee, you had to get the consent of three quarters of the scheme membership. And it was on a corporate transaction where we were acting for the seller and the target company had this provision in a huge DB pension scheme and needless to say it made that scheme very unattractive to the purchaser. Uh, what are the powers to permit other participating employers? Um, it's usually by a deed of adherence. Uh, are there powers to substitute the principal employer? If so, in what circumstances and how is it done? Again, usually by deed. What are the powers to cease contributions or to terminate the scheme? Um, all of those are extremely important provisions. And just to have an awareness, if you don't keep them in your head, which is at least know where to find them in your pension scheme documentation. One particular important provision of your pension scheme documentation um, are the indemnity provisions. Um, and it's one that employers tend not to be aware of, particularly in relation to DC schemes. Very often employers in their scheme documentation will indemnify trustees in respect of some or all of their actions or omissions in carrying out their duties as a trustee. If you have a provision like that in your pension scheme documentation, it should really focus your mind when you're appointing your trustees. Appoint carefully. You know, trustees, their duty is to the scheme members, not necessarily to you. Um, and you're not looking for a yes man. You need some a person or woman. <laughs> you need a trustee who knows how to manage the scheme, understands what their duties and obligations are. It's in your interest to make sure that they have adequate training to carry out those functions. It's in your interest to make sure that they have adequate resources to go out and carry out those functions if you have these indemnity provisions in your scheme documentation. So just have an awareness, is there an indemnity provision there? Um, to what extent are you indemnifying um, your trustees? And choose carefully and keep an eye on your trustees is how I, how I put it. Um, I've just included two other, uh, three other items here, early and late retirement provisions and normal retirement age, basically because they're relevant to the conversations we've been having here this morning. Um, but I'm pretty much out of time, so I'm not going to go through my takeaways, but they'll be in your packs to take away with you. And I'm going to hand over to Stephen. Thank you very much. Morning, everyone. Uh, first off, a quick apology. Right after this talk, I'm giving a presentation uh, in our neighbours Google on quite the converse topic, actually, young people and pensions. So if I start talking about my favourite Star Wars uh, character or smashed avocado and toast or my favourite beard cream, 
I've simply got a, the two thoughts totally muddled up in my head. So let's get that just out of the way first. Okay, so I'll wrap up proceedings today very quickly. So you'll all be able to hear nicely on time, hopefully. With uh, just by looking at the common issues employers face when dealing with pension scheme documentation. We'll also look at something that's quite topical. Ways an employer can actually facilitate an employee working beyond his or her normal retirement age. And finally, I'm going to wrap up with a very, very brief mention of the recent Social Welfare and Pensions Bill, which could have far-ranging changes for DB schemes in Ireland. So let's start off by looking at what... Oh, where are we going? Uh, start off by looking at what every uh, employer should know about their pension scheme document. Well, the first document... That, I don't know what's going on here. Sorry about this. Okay. So let's start off by looking at what every employer should know about their pension scheme document. Well, the first document that an employee sees that references his or her pension is typically the employment contract. It's therefore crucial that the information contained in the employment contract is accurate and not misleading. So what should go into an employment contract from an employer's perspective? Well, if the employer just operates a PRSA, there really isn't a lot to say. And the contract will simply say that further information on accessing the PRSA can be obtained by contacting X individual from HR or payroll. Where trouble typically arises, where the employer does operate a pension scheme, and they seek to pepper the employment contract with wording beaming about the benefits of that scheme. I've set out an example of wording here, and I've called it the pensions clause from hell. Now, this was actually in a transaction that I dealt with. So th this isn't made up. So people with a pensions experience will look at this and go, that has to be made up. But no, I actually saw this in a transaction. Now, this is the worst type of pensions clause available for the reasons that I'll mention in just a moment. If we look at my sample wording, the first thing that it does is it references a defined benefit scheme. So this is a big problem if the employer, in years later, wants to move away from a defined benefit scheme and move towards a DCC, so something that we're seeing quite often, and move from DB to DC. In these circumstances, an employee could claim that any move away from a defined benefit arrangement could amount to a breach of contract. The clause also specifically states that the employee is not obliged to contribute to the scheme. And whilst this statement might may be currently active, by setting it out in the employment contract, the employer is restricting its ability to get the employee to contribute to the scheme at a later point in the future. The clause also contains the words that sends shivers down the spine of many a pensions lawyer. Guaranteed. Now, I did have a good line that was going to say, nothing in Ireland, nothing's guaranteed save for rainy summers, but then uh, recent weather kind of knocked that line out of the park. But guaranteed should never be stated in a pensions clause. The use of this single word could impact on future plans the employer may have to reduce or amend benefits available in the scheme. Okay, so this represents what shouldn't go in an employment contract. But what should go in a pensions contract from, uh, from an employer's perspective? Well, the easiest option by far is simply to state that further details on the retirement benefit available can be obtained by contacting HR and payroll. But this kind of ignores that the employment contract seeks to do more than simply set out the respective duties of the employer and employee. In a way, it seeks to entice the employee to accept the job offer. 
There's no generic pensions clause that we plug into each employment contract. And the wording used very much depends on the type of scheme that's made available and also the employee. What, uh, what range is he an executive or is he on the factory floor? The pensions clause contained in the contract needs to be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis to ensure that the costly mistake that I mentioned in the pensions clause from hell aren't repeated. Effective communication with employees doesn't begin and end with the employment contract. Over the course of an employment, an employee will be communicated in relation to their pension benefits in a whole range of ways. As Peggy mentioned, the member's explanatory booklet is an important document that employees typically get. This document seeks to set out in plain and simple language the benefits that an employee will get out of their pension scheme. During the recession, I noticed that a lot of booklets were either produced by employers, trustees, or life officers. So one party produced them and the other had no involvement. Now, this really led to issues because you had booklets being circulated that neither represented the benefits of the scheme or the ever-evolving ever pensions legislation. I came across one case in the last year or so where a number of new employees were presented with a booklet which described a more generous pre-recession contribution structure, which still applied to the existing employees. At, wor at best, this created a kind of us and them mentality in the workforce and a HR headache for the employee. At very worst, this could be a, the employer could be left with a big problem, where a sizable chunk of employees could claim that they were entitled to the more generous contribution structure that was communicated to them in error. Of course, information that's given to employees via websites, emails, notice boards, or third-party communications should be controlled and monitored by the employer. The more sources of communication that exist, the better from the employee's perspective, but this also increases the chances for error and contradiction in those materials. An area that we're often asked to provide advice for is in relation to facilitating employees who wish to work beyond their normal retirement age. If an employer agrees to this, the first thing to do from a pensions perspective is check what's permissible under the trustee rules of the scheme. Most pension schemes will allow an employee to work beyond his or her normal retirement age. Typically you have one or two options. Firstly, the employee can draw down their pension at their normal retirement age. So say if the scheme says 65, draw down your pension and then the employee will have two income streams going forward, pension and salary. The second option is to decide to defer the payment of benefit till the actual later date of retirement. The benefits of this from the employee's perspective is that they'll receive a higher pension to take account of the fact that it's going to be paid for less time. What is actually permissible depends on the trustee and rules of the scheme. If an employee decides to defer retirement, the employer needs to give consideration if it intends to continue paying contributions into that scheme until the actual later date of retirement. Most pension schemes contain a degree of flexibility and allow a range of options in relation to this. It's important that employers know what's contained in the pension scheme and that these options are clearly communicated to employees. Public sector pension schemes also contain a, a, a requirement known as abatement, where essentially a public sector pensioner, if he's rehired into the public service, 
his pension can be reduced or abated. Needless to say, abatement is a complex process and it's governed by a multitude of rules and circulars. But it's important if you do work in the public sector that you do take advice in relation to the application and calculation of abatement. Now, just a very quick mention of the recent Social Welfare and Pensions Bill. We're going to be sending around an e-zine later today that contains uh, more information on it, so I won't go through uh, the bill in detail. Primarily, it concerns DB schemes, and it's going to see an increase in the difficulty levels, really, of employers winding up those arrangements. If enacted, the bill will certainly lead to changes in the DB landscape in Ireland. And it's only a bill, so it might change drastically in the next few months. And seeing as Leo Varadkar's move from the department uh, to Taoiseach, we may see further changes in the bill. Further information on the nuts and bolts of the bill are set out in the easing. So I'd say just read it later on today or maybe tomorrow. And if you have any questions on how it may impact you, feel free to give me a call. So just a few t- take-home points to wrap up very quickly. So the employment contract. No one size fits all. Pay attention to what goes into the employment contract from a pensions perspective, as any mistakes can be very costly. Familiarise yourself, as Peggy mentioned, with your trust documentation, and, in, in, and especially have regard to the early and late retirement rules and what can be done. How can an employee be facilitated through the pension scheme in working beyond normal retirement age? And finally, if you operate a DB scheme in Ireland, be aware that there are changes coming down the line in the shape of the Social Welfare and Pensions Bill 2017. And if you have any questions on the bill, please feel free to pass them on.